to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Broback. And this week, we are not covering a novel. We are not covering a short story. We have a special guest. And we, we could do. not be more excited. Our guest is someone whose name you've heard so many times on this podcast before because he is an invaluable resource to us as one of the foremost scholars of Agatha Christie. That would be John Curran who has two books currently to his name, both of which, again, we have used just shamelessly on this podcast to try to make sense of Christie's mystery puzzling. Process. Yeah, her process and what might have been going on in her brain when she was concocting these puzzle mysteries. And I can only reference the autobiography of Agatha Christie so much, you know, Uh, occasionally I have to go to a secondary text. I mean, Kemper, (laughs) I think some of us have uh, wondered in the past if there is a limit to how many times you can reference Agatha Christie's autobiography, (laughs) but um, we are uh, all very glad for the work that uh, John Kern has done, especially in the archives, both to add, I think, insight into what we're talking about and to uh, eliminate long quotes from the autobiography on this particular podcast. Yes, just for that alone, he has <laughs> um, he has he has definitely saved you from some autobiographical meanderings. So his first book was Agatha Christie's Secret Notebooks: Fifty Years of Mysteries in the Making, and. Really, if you're a listener of this podcast, you should read this book because it deep dives into the notebooks that Agatha Christie kept throughout her life in which she made notes and worked out the plots and characters and puzzles for her novels. And it brings just such a deeper level of understanding to how she did what she did and also just what she was doing because he has a lot of information in here that we have not found anywhere else. So that's the first book. And then he also wrote a follow-up book to that called Agatha Christie's Murder in the Making, More Stories and Secrets from Her Notebook. And it's just more of all of the wonderful information that he served up in the first volume. These volumes also feature some previously unpublished short stories. These books were also my source for that preface that Agatha Christie wrote to the serialized version of Appointment with Death, in which she talks about her relationship with Hercule Poirot. I could not find that on Google, believe it or not could only find it in, in Mr. Curran's books. And I think so, that he he has just done a wonderful job as a, essentially a literary historian finding the narrative through the archives. Yeah. We yeah. just could not appreciate these books more um, as yeah. not just resources for this podcast, but as interesting literary historical works in and of themselves. Absolutely. We should also note that we spoke with Mr. Curran over the telephone and the voice quality came out a bit harsher and more tinny than we hoped. We'll be working on that in future interview episodes, which we hope to do more often. So please bear with us for now. Let's proceed to have a discussion about all things Christy. Great. Our first question for you, John, is that in reading your book, Agatha Christie's Notebooks, you make all these um, references to ideas that Agatha Christie scribbled down in her notebooks, which didn't become novels or short stories. And you highlighted some of them. The one that we really enjoyed was this detection club murder mystery that could have featured Ariadne Oliver, since we've had our own fanfic sort of fantasizing about Ariadne Oliver and Raymond West. Um, Another very intriguing idea, a bit along the lines of the detection club, is the Cluedo murder. What is that one? Well, I'm not sure. I think in the U.S. you called the board game Clue. Yes, sure. This side of the Atlantic is called Cluedo, and she was plotting a murder using the characters of Cluedo. So she talks about Professor Plum and Colonel Mustard and Miss Scarlet, who I think I remember saying she was a young lady of loose morals, and maybe she could be Professor Plum's secretary. So, for whatever reason, she didn't pursue this, but she has quite extensive notes about it in one of the notebooks around about the early 50s, because Cluedo, I think, went on the market at the end of the 40s. So, 
it would have been the ultimate combination of the greatest mystery writer ever and the greatest whodunit board game ever combining forces to come up with something, well, hopefully very intriguing. So I, I don't know why she abandoned that, but that, that would have been a, a, real, a real classic Agatha Christie, I like to think. Yeah. I mean, I mean as people who are fans of the, uh, <laughs> the 1980s adaptation, film adaptation of said board game, oh. uh, that would certainly have been intriguing. Yeah, and I, I think... Certainly would, I don't think it really captured the essence of the board game. <laughs> Not so much. That's quite funny and crazy, but... <laughs> yes, I did it. I killed Yvette. I hated her so much. It, it, the, it flamed, flames, flames on the side of my face, breathing, breath, heaving breaths. But um, I suppose the other thing that intrigued me about that was that Agatha Christie was aware of that because if the board game wouldn't have been that very familiar at the time. Yeah, that's obviously a branding fantasy. I think these days there are so many movies that are based on yes. board games. Like Hasbro has yes. essentially built an empire just based off of their board yes. game brands. I don't think anyone would be able to resist the idea of Agatha Christie doing Clue. That would only be more attractive, I think, in today's environment than it would have been back then. <laughs> it would have been wonderful, and she'd obviously given it quite a lot of thought because the notes are relatively expensive, two or three pages of them, but sadly that's as far as it got. The other small idea that I find really intriguing, and I wonder how she would have managed it, you may not remember because it's only a very short suggestion. We all know in, for instance, a mirror crack from side to side and three-act tragedy poisoning at some sort of reception or a party. But she was trying to work out some system where the person to whom the drink is handed is the killer. Interesting. It seems to be something that she did did enjoy doing, right? Setting up a technical difficulty for herself and then figuring yes. her way out of it. Like, uh, And then there were none. Yes, was was concocted that way, right? Very, very successful on many occasions. Yeah. But that, that's quite an intriguing, short idea. That is and very of course, intriguing. Now, poison was her favorite murder message. Of course. We were talking about the killers who can sort of self inoculate so as to also right. look like victims. And so, I mean, I think it's interesting every time it's used. Oh, it is, absolutely. She managed to do most of her plot ideas more than once, and yet she managed to disguise them so successfully that very few people actually realize them and they go back and analyze them in more detail. Yeah, and she even, and I think you even quoted in your book, she she has Ariadne Oliver acknowledging that fact, right? When Poirot says, well, you wrote two books that were essentially the same book. They're just yeah. in a different setting and a different murder. And she says, oh, yes, how clever of you. That's totally true. I do that all the time. I love that because I think that's like a Christie being a sort of metafictional, if you like. I'm wondering how many of her readers will stop the same thing. Oh, she is so metafictional with her authors. We've been tracking that very closely since it's obviously of great interest as we're rereading and something that I think you don't pick up on as much in your first read. But no, even not. even back to Death in the Cloud, she has that first sort of proto Ariadne Oliver author who she uses to poke fun at how she walks around. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Muttering to herself and then Ariadne. Yeah. Quite a figure of fun. Yes. I, I don't mean fun as in witty and entertaining like Ariadne Oliver. She writes them almost to be pitied. Yes, no, it's I, true. I, I don't think she wanted to portray him as a detective novelist of the Golden Age type. I think that she's always trying to do something self-deprecating whenever there, an author appears in her stories, because having read her autobiography, self-deprecating humor or humor at her own expense just seems to be something she's very into as a person. So I think that was always her goal, so to speak, when those characters appear on the page. And it's mainly charming. Sometimes it can be a little odd. Perhaps in that case it was, but it's mainly entertaining and provides these light moments that I think often work within the, the overall mysteries. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, there's something to be said about self-deprecation masking inherent insecurity, isn't there? Yes, and uh, again, she says in her autobiography about the fact that um, she's a rather good writer of detective fiction, but, um, and I think that's the point exactly, Captain. And of course, I, I always try to bear in mind that she was a Victorian, mm-hmm. and she was a Victorian female which is even a step worse again, if you like, because blowing your own trumpet as a female would not be what she was brought up to do. Um, And I think she carried that right through. Yeah. 
yeah, there's almost an apologetic air sometimes at this, you know, this fame. She, let's be honest, she achieved fame and fortune to an extent that was almost unprecedented. And there almost seems to be this air of apology and embarrassment about it and legitimate embarrassment. It's really interesting. I agree, absolutely. Don't know she did not go to university. She didn't go to school. Right. She was homeschooled, right? Which is quite stunning. And had to teach herself to read, right? Her mother had this yes, crazy now, idea. I have to say, nobody in my life is fifty more than I do, but I don't believe anyone can teach themselves to read. <laughs> if I was faced with a room load of books written in Japanese in pre-internet days, how would you teach yourself to read them? It's <laughs> a good question. Perhaps well, the biggest mystery of all. So we had a really specific question for you, which has to do with three novels that we have already covered on this podcast. And those would be Three Act Tragedy, Death in the Clouds, and the ABC Murders, because you wrote in your book that they all conceal the killer in similar surrounds. And... We weren't exactly sure what you meant by that because we made the point on our podcast that Three Act Tragedy and ABC Murders essentially hinge on the same plot twist, which is an early murder obfuscating the later true murder or the crucial murder, if you want to call it that. But that's not really the case for Death in the Clouds. Of course, we do have the fact that we have a murderer dressing up as a servant in Death in the Clouds and also Three Act Tragedy. And there's an element of that in the ABC murders, but it's not quite the murderer who's doing that. It's part of the the sort of overall obfuscation in that novel. So we just weren't sure what you meant by that. And, and since it's three novels we've covered. Um, what I meant there was the fact that in each case, the murderer is a member of Poirot's little band of helpers. Oh, okay. So Charles is, is helping him. Got it. Um, Norman Gale and Jane in Death in the Clouds they're both helping in a very common all the time. And um, he has a little band of helpers stroke suspects from ABC murders. And in each case, the murderer turns out to be one of those. One of his helpers. Oh, yeah. 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 It's more of a fundamental principle than we were even thinking of. Well, I'm glad that we asked that question because as often happens, it was a simple answer that was just escaping us. Yes. So. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So this is a fine point, but a really fascinating one that you got at in your book. A little bit of detective work you did yourself to get to the conclusion that Sleeping Murder, which as most listeners will know, is Agatha Christie's final published novel, but was a novel that she had written much earlier in her career and essentially put in a vault to to be published at a later date. This was her final marble. The sort of apocryphal telling of it is that it was written during World War II, right? That's definitely what I had thought as a more casual fan. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, I think people like the romance of imagining the bombs yeah. going off during the Blitz and Agatha Christie yeah. feverishly writing his Poirot and Marple novel and thinking she might not live to see another day. But uh, it seems that Sleeping Murder was actually written closer to 1950 than 1940. And what particularly interested me about your point is that you think that may account for it's not being quite as good. Well, I never, from the day that I first read Sleeping Murder, I never considered it amongst the type of books that she was writing at the peak of her career. I don't know whether you agree or not with that. You know, obviously, as you know, our project here is rereading her oh, yes, her canon in order. So we haven't gotten we, we certainly haven't gotten to it yet, nor will we get to it within years. <laughs> For, well, I, I just feel that it's not there's nothing stunningly clever about the book as there is, for instance, about Curtin, which is just one stunning conjuring trick after another. So I was very disappointed with it, and I, even at the time, um, I remember saying to people, I don't know who listened to me, that I didn't really, I found it very difficult to believe that was something that she had written at the height of her powers. So I, I have received a certain amount of flack from fans about the, what I came up with, Sleeping Murder, but I can't see any other explanation for the fact that there are, there are two dates written in the notebooks, in, inside the notes for Sleeping Murder, dated 1947 and 48 or 48 or 49, I can't remember which now. So I can't think of any other, anything else that would explain those dates unless she was writing it in 1948. But I think the other point that um, is, is overlooked in all of this, if she was writing Sleeping Murder at the same time as Curtin, which 
which was written in 1940. Why would she be writing the last Miss Marple at that point when there had only been one Miss Marple novel? Yeah. Well, two. Well, no, one really because it was just uh, vicarage and thirteen problems. Right. Right. At that, at that stage, Miss Marple wasn't a serious character, but by 1948, she would have added. Um, body in the library and moving finger, so it makes slightly more sense that you would be writing the last in the verdict comments. Right, no, I think that's an excellent point. I mean, and she still had, obviously, many more marbles to go, even after writing, even if Sleeping Murder was written in 48, she still had a lot yes. more n- marbles after that. But she also had a lot more Poirots after she wrote Curtain, obviously. So You could understand her writing the last Poirot in 1940, because Poirot had had quite a glittering career up to then. Oh, yeah. Miss Marple had barely, barely made a dent on the publishing world, or her fans, yeah. or readers' yeah. perception. So, um, again, I think that backs up the 1948 argument. But also, in the, towards the end of Sleeping Murder, she talks about the poison pen letters at Limstock, which is 1943. Right. So how could, how could she do that in 1940? Right. No, I think it's. I mean, I I think you lay out the case beautifully. I, what I'm what I'm curious about is this: is the notion that she perhaps had a peak in her career and that this, she was already on the decline. And I'm wondering, and I know this is, this is also opinion. There's no objective answer here as to whether or not, um, Christie's writing peaked at a certain point, but do you think that there was a point at which her writing hit an all time high in the forties? I think it was around the time of World War II, certainly the late thirties, into the early forties, probably. And if you look back at the books just between 1930 and 1940, not one of them fall below, below the standard of excellence because they're all in that decade. There isn't a mishit anywhere in that decade. Yeah. The book that I don't understand in that decade is why didn't they ask Evan because it doesn't, although it's a very clever, light-hearted thriller, it doesn't fit in with the rest of them at all, but that's another argument. So I would say even if her writing started to decline, say from the mid-40s on, it was still wonderful compared to many of her contemporaries. But it just never... It didn't reach the peak of Orient Express, ABC Murders, Hercule Poirot's Christmas, and then there were none, which are all... If she's never written another word, we still talk about Agatha Christie for those books alone. Right. So, while I greatly admire books, later books, Mrs. McGinty's Dead, After the Funeral, Pale Horse, now much later, for me, they're not in the same category of clever intricacy as Orient Express or Lord Edward Ives or ABC Murders. Right, right. You see the point point I'm trying to make? Oh, no. Yeah. There isn't an edifice of clues and alibis and very clever reader perception. Yeah. No, I absolutely, I think, I think that's true. It's interesting to me because Christie herself, as obviously you know, pointed to in a couple of different places, either from fans asking her or at one point in her autobiography, she mentions what she thinks her best titles are. And she picks out Ordeal by Innocence and Crooked House and even The Moving Finger, interestingly. And you have in your, in your second book that you wrote, Agatha Christie's list of her favorite short stories that she wrote out when she was much older, which is quite honestly a shocking list because it, it includes all of these little-known supernatural tales uh, yeah, that most yeah. casual fans have never read and don't seem at all like her. She seems to value sometimes not so much her mystery puzzling, but more of the atmospherics that she pulls off. And I just, it's interesting because I tend to agree with you. I think if I had to identify and we're, we're still working our way through, but it seems like we're approaching her peak and we've been having a really good run of novels through the thirties. We just covered appointment with death. We're about to get to Hercule Poirot's Christmas. Obviously we have, and then there were none coming up and it's, it's mind blowing, honestly, how, how she just churned out hit after hit. Sometimes in the same year. Yeah, yeah. Or like, yeah, two, three times in the same year. But she, um, it's just interesting that she doesn't seem to identify that as her peak. She seems to be perhaps oriented just differently and a a little bit later. And everyone, every Christie fan obviously has their own opinion as to what her her best titles are. But um, I just find that interesting. Absolutely. Um, I do think Orty by Innocence was an interesting one for her to choose. I, I certainly, I was surprised when I read that. But I think what intrigued her there is the idea of justice and the fact that until justice takes place, everyone suffers. Yeah. Something that she 
being integral to at least like Poirot in particular's psyche, right? And and Miss Marple. I mean, we talked about it at Murder at the Vicarage that it seems to be a driving concern. Yes, her her predilection for the innocent, the airing of grievances, and the the reconstructing of life for for those who have been affected by a murder but are innocent preoccupies her. I think certainly preoccupies Poirot, but preoccupies her more than enacting revenge or punishment on the murderer. Oh, yes, absolutely. And, and, and that's why I, I think that she, she chose all the advice, because that's the book in which she explores that in greater detail than any of her other books. Um, and, of course, the type of book she was writing in the 30s didn't really do that, apart from the fact that justice has to be, has to be done and, and seen to be done. One of my favorite Agatha Christie books, although Temper definitely differs in opinion with me on this. I somewhat let's five little pigs. Don't set me up as a five little pigs hater here. I'm not a hater. I just don't love it to the insane extent of Catherine. But but John, I believe you also love five little pigs. Well, I do, but I was I was like this sounds like an AA meeting or something. I used to like it. But what changed my mind was the notes for. Uh, Five Little Pigs because there are more notes for almost any other for Five Little Pigs and almost any other book and every single thing about the book changes between the early notes and the final final product the characters the characters names their relationships their the murder methods even when she decides on a poison it's a different poison that she eventually settles on um, and I, I presume are you familiar with Robert Barnard's book It's Talent to Deceive no, actually, I'm not. I don't. Catherine, are you? No. No. Oh, you should. But he, at the time, it was 1980. It was published. Um, he sees parallels between the setup in Five Little and Agatha Christie's personal life with Archie Christie, even pointing out, and I, I, I don't agree with his theory, but it is quite intriguing that the the man in Five Little Pigs, Amias Crane, has the same initials as Archie Christie. True. And Amias is a philanderer. Oh, yeah. And Amias thought about his own destruction, if you like, by his carry-on. Um, so, but that was intriguing. I, I actually don't go along with it. But I do think that Five Little Pigs is the closest Agatha Christie came to a, a crime novel. And, and a detective novel as distinct from a detective story where it's just clues and alibis and suspects and horror dancing everyone together. Um, I think it's a, it's a deeply felt book and it's, it has it packs quite an emotional wallop. Years ago, when I first read Five Little Pigs, I found it quite disappointing because it is it is quite different to most Agatha Christie's up to that point. But I'm now a, a firm that actually you identify the abc murders as another of your favorite titles and five little pigs i'm just curious is there a one other christy title or, or a handful of other christy titles that you absolutely love well, I, first of all i think everyone's favorite change as the years go on and mm. She's doing so much in that novel, and it's so interesting. And I think it's an unsung Christie because I didn't appreciate it until we reread it for this podcast. I had certainly read it 
at some point, but I just passed it over. And I think a lot of people do for whatever reason, but there is a lot going on in that novel. And I believe, I believe it's going to be adapted. It's actually next up for BBC adaptation. (laughs) Well, and that actually, that's a perfect segue to our next question, because we're curious how you feel about David Suchet's portrayal of Poirot. We, I mean, just to give you a sense, we adore it, but in rewatching certain episodes directly after reading the novels, we did notice that in the later seasons, especially Suchet and the producers seem to have this obsession with Poirot's fundamental loneliness and unhappiness. And there's just a, you know, there's a darker tone and there's a sort of crabbiness to Poirot and Suchet's portrayal of him that is interesting. And the- I don't know, there was, a, there was a gap of about five years in which it looked like we were never going to see any more. When yep. they came back, the first one, the first one after they came back was Five Little Pigs. And I knew immediately there was a whole change of tone. It was it was darker in every sense of the word. And all that banter with, well, Hastings was gone, so there's no banter with Hastings, and there was no chat, and there was no Miss Lemon. So yes, there was a, a, a distinct change of tone. And certainly by about the last four episodes, it's gone pretty much off the rails. I mean, I hate his version of Orient Express. Yeah, I don't hate it, but it's certainly, they, they made a decision and they went in a very specific direction with it and they went hard. And if you don't like that, it, it makes the whole thing a mess. A labor of Hercules is a complete disaster. Most of the early Poirot, the bantery, late Hastings um, Poirot, those are all short story adaptations. Well, yes, they were, but they did a lot of the novels later. They did two series of, they did about 24 episodes of the short stories, and then they moved on to the novels. Um, And they did, one of the first novels they did was Styles, which I thought was superb. of salvaging what could be salvaged out of the big four and the changes that were made I certainly didn't mind because the big four is just a I mean it's a bit of a Frankenstein's monster of of a novel anyway right in that it's just short stories all stitched together in a hurry um yeah, yeah no I I agree with that I mean we we did after our Death on the Nile episode, I came down rather hard on the decisions that Suchet made in Murder on the Orient Express to make Poirot as tortured as he was, um, which is certainly not in the text. However, there is this sense of darkness and loneliness in the text in Death on the Nile, which is absolutely warranted, I think, in the adaptation and does work quite well in the in the Suchet adaptation of Death on the Nile. Actually, that's a, a fairly later one, and I thought that one worked well. So I, I think I, I understand why he made those decisions as an actor. But. Um, no, no, I would not. No. I would not, no. I think that he... That's mostly by virtue of the ending, right? On Murder on the Orient Express. Uh, oh, yes. But I just found the ending, as it is on David Suchet, was just ridiculous. I mean, he's, he's literally... Five, ten lengths before the end, he's screaming at the, at the assembled suspects, no, that I'm going to tell the truth, the truth wins out, justice must be done. And then they're all standing there waiting for the axe to fall, and he walks over in the most pathetic snow I've ever seen on the screen, and he doesn't say a word, and we're never given any reason why he changed his mind from his hysterical fit five minutes before. So it was just a logic of it that got me, because we all know he wasn't going to, he wasn't going to let the cat out of the bag. Right. So I don't know why they went through all that rigmarole. Right, yes. But anyway, I, I get very angry when I think about Orient Express right, <laughs> on, the, on the screen because 19, the 1974 version is never going to be bettered. How do you feel about Albert Finney's portrayal? Well, the, that's the only problem I have with that 1974 film. Uh, Albert Finney, for most of it, needs subtitles. <laughs> it's so difficult to know what he's saying. <laughs> um, but it's the only fault I would find. Otherwise, that film is a perfect, a 
increase the education if you're going to find. Would you agree? Or? The Albert Finney portrayal was certainly our biggest issue when we rewatched the 74 version too. And then the highlight, oddly enough, of course, is Ingrid Bergman, who is not necessarily is not necessarily the highlight in the book that, of course, she is in the film version. I feel, I think, the inverse about the Murder on the Orient Express movie in that there are things about Albert Finney's performance that I like because I think that it breaks up what, to me, feels like a rather plotting, and that's plotting with two Ds, uh, (laughs) portrayal of of a story. I I think it's a little boring. I think that it's a little little staid. I mean, I had that problem overall with Murder on the Orient Express and rereading it. It's one of the novels, it's one of those Christie crown jewel novels that is obviously brilliant and one of her best, but not the best reread. Because once you know what's happening, there's a lot to churn through there. And if that reveal is not a surprise, it can feel a little tedious. So that's one other thing that we've accidentally come across, which are the best Christie rereads. And to my surprise, I think I would say Murder on the Orient Express was one of the worst experiences when it came to that. Really? Yeah. I reread it there around the time the film was released at the end of last year, and I totally enjoyed it because I like picking up references or phrases or sentences that suddenly take on a whole new meaning when you know the solution. Yeah, that can, I don't, for for whatever reason, there was a tedium to it. And I think it's so enclosed. They're obviously stuck on a train that's not moving. It didn't trip along the way that it did on the the first read. But in any case, we also wanted to touch on with you, this is something we don't talk about often enough on the podcast, but Christie was obviously not just a short story writer and a novelist, but also a playwright and one of the most successful playwrights ever. One of the things that we do in preparation for the podcast is we have a Google alert for Agatha Christie that we check periodically. And I would say nine out of, maybe not nine out of 10, maybe like seven out of 10 of the Google alerts we receive for her are about amateur productions of her plays that are just constantly being put on all over the world. Dozens of them at any... Yeah, yeah, just dozens of them at any one time. And it's really such a testament to all of the plays that she created. And that, I think, also is part of the secret as to why she endures as much as she does. It's not just the novels. It's also these plays, which are so beloved and constantly being um, put up in you know small and large venues. My, my sort of hot two-second take on the play is, is that most people know The Mousetrap because that, of course, is the longest run on the West End. It's the most famous, arguably the most famous. Yeah. I've seen The Mousetrap. We, of course, are not going to talk about the intricacies of The Mousetrap plot. I'm not particularly impressed by The Mousetrap. I think that it, it's serviceable and it does its job well and it's charming, yeah. but it's certainly not Christie at her brilliant best. Um, and which, so, which is interesting that The Mousetrap is, is as well-known and successful as it is. And then Witness for the Prosecution, I would say, is probably her best player, at least is brilliant. Not Yeah. But there's a lot in between there. And, you know, a lot of her novels she adapted as plays and then she had her she had some original plays that she wrote. And I'm just curious if there are any other standouts that you would point to as Christie plays we a fan should know about. Well, I think um, from the originals, the ones who are directly from the stage, I think Spider's Web. Because it's a, it's a comedy thriller, but it has enough of each to make that description justifiable. It's, it's full of clever ideas. <laughs> have, you, have you seen it, by the way, before I went further? No, not at all. Oh, have some of you? No, I have not. Oh, but you have read the script, have you? I may have at one point, but I'm really not that familiar with Spider's Web. Oh, sharp intake of breath and shocking. It is full of clever, Christie-like ideas. Now, I, I point out in whichever secret notebooks book the ideas that she um, uses that have appeared in short stories and novels prior to that, and whether she was used, recycling them consciously or subconsciously, we never know. But it is a very clever play with the good. Keeps the suspicion going between the crafters and characters, um, and it also has quite an amount of comedy. The, the Clarissa, the, the main character, is genuinely funny and entertaining. And if you've never seen the BBC Penelope Keith version of it, you have to. You have to. It's just been released on DVD. It's hugely entertaining. 
fantastic and it's very clever. The other play that I admire is The Hollow. Oh. Um, I was going yeah. to ask you about that. That's really interesting, um, especially especially as an adaptation. Yeah, it's, again, it's very much out of Christie Country, the country house murder mystery that guests are assembled for the weekend. And we have the murder and then the investigation. In the UK, there has been, for the last 10 or 12 years, the Agatha Christie Theatre Company. And that was their first production when they began life about 12 years ago. And they did a version of it. They skewed the set. It was literally on a slant because the director, because I got to know the director, and he said, well, he sees that as, as he saw that as the end of the country house party era because it was just after the Second World War when society changed forever as a result and the, the days of the house party were drawn to a close. So I, I think you made a very good point throughout the production because Agatha Christie herself veered away from country house parties largely after that point. Again, I think the central situation, the emotional entanglement at the centre of the plot is very convincing and very gripping and Agatha Christie plays a lot with it. Now you could argue both in novel and in book that the murderer is kept off stage for a little bit too long but it is, there is a clever idea. And one other one, if you've never read, I, I, you may not be aware of this, but the, when she adapted Appointment with Death, she changed the killer. Yes, that is the last novel that we covered and we were fascinated by it. I love when she changes. I think she also technically did that in Chimneys in this it didn't she did she change the killer in the she Secret of Chimneys adaptation? Not quite as robust of a mystery in that one, but um no. <laughs> but I would argue that the ending that she gave the play version of Point of Death is much better than the novel. Yes. No, I, I... Psychologically, it's much more convincing. Well, and given that that novel is so much about psychology, I think a little bit to its detriment. I think, for me, there there's a little too much musing about psychology and the effect of this one woman's influence on her family over and over and over again. But that feels like a more appropriate ending for what had actually been going on there. I agree 100%. Absolutely, yeah. I love when she I love when she seems to improve upon her ending. But I have to say we talked about this in our witness for the prosecution episode and she talks about how she really fought for that altered ending oh, yeah. in witness for the prosecution because other people didn't want it and we both love the ending of the short story. How do you feel yeah. about the ending of the play for that one? Well, I like you. I love the ending, and I can still remember um, as a schoolboy reading the witnesses' prosecution, and it was like you kick in the teeth when you get to the last line, and it is literally the last line of yep. the story. Um, but I, I think she did a wonderful job with the stage play because she has not just two, but three twists at the end of it, and I find them all convincing. They are acceptable because it's running in London at the moment a new stage version. Well, not new, but they're doing it in a courtroom essentially. But people in the audience around me, I could hear them gasping as the, as the last few lines were being said. So even after all this time, there are people out there who don't know the ending witness of the prosecution. Right. So it still stands up. And I, I don't think it strains credulity at all. But you obviously do, do you? Yeah. The ending of the short story is, I mean, kick in the teeth is a perfect way of describing it. And I think having that single twist that just yeah. reframes the whole thing is so powerful that it's impressive that she's adding twist upon twist upon twist but it also to me takes away from the power of that single kick well, I think the other thing <laughs> you need to bear in mind is morally I don't think she would have been less at the ending of the story on the stage because you know the way it's like the Hayes office in old Hollywood movies a couple in a bedroom one of them had to have a foot on the floor Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. cold, happy. Soviet, I don't think she would have been allowed by the Lord Chamberlain of the UK have a story in which someone got away with it. Right. And that's a similar issue with, um, and then there were none. I think I had always been baffled as a more casual reader as to why none of the adaptations, and this was before the BBC adaptation came out, but why none of the adaptations seemed to yeah. stick with the wonderfully bleak ending yeah. of that novel, but of course she yeah. changed yeah. it herself, right? In her play yeah. adaptation. I think it's even more understandable then because when it premiered on the stage of the the Blitz, mm. people were being killed by the hundreds every day of the week. 
I don't think they wanted to watch a play in which everyone, it's like everyone also no. dies on the stage. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So on another another note, we actually referenced you quite a bit in our episode on Dumb Witness, which, oh. which, I'm, which I'm sad to say was not, I think that was a, a rare novel of the 30s that did not work as well as most of those other novels in the 30s. And I think reading the unpublished short story that you appended in your book, to me... It feels like one of the problems with that novel is that it's essentially a bloated version of that short story. We have that whole first section, which which basically gets repeated after Poirot and Hastings get this letter, and then they go back into this town and essentially relearn everything that we've already learned. It just feels unnecessary, and, and, and I know that there was some theorizing that the reason why is that Christie just needed to expand the book for American serialization. Um, yes, that is the reason, because I've seen there's a letter in the archive where she, she talks about adding to the beginning of it. But did you, are we coming down too hard on Dumb Witness? How do you feel about that uh, novel? No, I can see exactly what you're saying, and I wouldn't argue against it, because what you're saying is, is correct. But I still love the book, but, but again, this may be because it was the first, the first Agatha Christie I borrowed from the public library. That was quite a big deal. To, um, I don't know how the system works in America, but you have a junior ticket for so many years, and then you're allowed to join the senior library. And from that, the first book I borrowed on my senior ticket was Dumb Witness, and I, I remember coming home and reading it, sitting in the back garden. So I have a great affection for that book, even though I would, I would quite agree with you, there is quite a lot of padding in it. But I have to say, I enjoyed, and still enjoy the padding. And we do too. I mean, all of our critiquing is within the context of, obviously, we've created a podcast about Christie, so we enjoy every single word that she wrote. But it just, when we're speaking relatively, it just feels, it certainly doesn't feel like it's one of her masterpieces. <laughs> no, it's not one of her masterpieces. Although I do think the criminal is conceived quite well, would you agree? It's funny that you say that because there was one point that we didn't cover on that episode, which is that I do think so because it is very gutsy of her that the first time we are introduced to our murderer in that case, which is Bella Tanios, she is a mother of two. And not just it's not just reference that she's a mother of two. We see her constantly with her children. Her children are drawing Mickey Mouse. She is portrayed as a devoted mother. We see her children and she's and that is surprising that she turns out to be the murderer. No, and I also think in that book, Christie is quite clever. In, in many ways, it answers some of her critics in dealing with the foreign husband. The foreign is an inverted kind of... So um, we, we agreed totally on that. He ends up being the good guy. The reader does a complete about face about the doctor in that. Yeah. Well, that actually brings us to a point that we struggle with a lot and that we discuss a lot on the podcast. We call it the stuck-in-its-time elements of Christie's writing when it, when it comes to the xenophobia. It's often anti-Semitism. There's a lot that jars for certainly a 21st century reader that one has to assume would not have jarred for a contemporary reader of Christie's time and that she was writing as very much as a person of her time, which is why calling it stuck in its time is our way of, of acknowledging the context there. We felt like we had to at least bring this up with you because it's something that just yeah. comes up constantly with oh, no. readers today. How do you feel about it? How do you deal with it? What's your well, take? Well, at the most basic level, I would agree with you. It is of its time. And that accounts for a large amount of it. But the other thing that sometimes annoys me about people is they assume that if Agatha Christie puts an anti-Semitic remark into the dialogue of a character, that that's Agatha Christie speaking, which of course is complete nonsense, because she may well have been putting that nasty remark into the mouth of a character to make us realize that this is a nasty character. Absolutely. And that's something I think that gets completely lost in the conversation because people, people see the word or they see the remark and they just, their eyes go red and then they, they, they lose that nuance a hundred percent. Yeah. Completely. And a couple of other points there, a lot of our contemporaries, I know this is no defense, but a lot of them are far worse. Also, alone of her contemporaries, Agatha Christie was the most widely traveled. So dealing with foreigners in inverted commas again was, was what she did frequently throughout her life, right up to the time she was an elderly lady. So she would have far more personal experience of foreigners inverted commas again. And there are passages in her autobiography and in Come Tell Me How You Live, which quite clearly show that 
she loved her sensitivity when she worked with Max Manuel on the archaeological digs. She loved that whole way of life and she had great respect for all of the people who worked on the digs and they would just be the natives of, of the area where she was where they were living and working. So I don't think it's really fair to say that about her because of all of the of the writers at that time. I think she was the most even-handed in dealing with that situation. I also would, would agree, as would you, I think, she doesn't get it right all of the time. No. But the most obvious example is, well, you haven't come to it yet, but it's Major in the hollow when she rings her employer to say that she can't go back to work on Monday because she's involved in a murder. Her employer is a Jewess who owns a, a dress shop and Major is one of her the girls who worked in the shop. That would be one example, but throughout whatever number of books and short stories, I don't think she commits that sin too often at all. Yeah, the worst instances and the instances where it seems to most obviously come from Christie herself often, unfortunately, seem to be anti-Semitism. A lot of this sort of... Carolyn Enthouse is another obvious example that it actually fits into the plot of it. That's true. Yeah. I just had a question, a short story-focused question, because it was pretty clear to me from reading your book that The Labors of Hercules is your favorite short story collection. But as the Miss Marple fanatic among the pair of us, I'm curious if there are any other standout short stories for you, and in particular Miss Marple, because Christie herself opined that Miss Marple's pure estate was in the short story form, and she put the 13 problems on that rather bizarre list late in her life of her favorite short stories. So are there any Marple short stories near and dear to your heart? I would tend to agree with her about the 13 problems because I think that the essence of Miss Marple is in the 13 problems. I mean, I love some of the novels as well, but most of those short stories she adapted and changed, but she adapted a plot device into a novel in many cases because most of them are very, very clever for short stories. And there's also a great span of some of them are light-hearted, like Motive versus Opportunity. It's clever, but it's not a very serious one. Yeah, and well, and the companion was pro- is probably the most famously yeah. adapted into a murder is announced. Well, elements of elements it. of it, sure, sure. There's there's a lot more going on in a murder is announced than is, is going yeah. on in the companion. Yeah. <laughs> and the bloodstained pavement, same. A lot of that was, was used in well, even the sun, I suppose, is the most obvious example. But um, and then the, the very first one, the Tuesday nightclub, that went on to become possible of life to a large extent. So I think that this whole storehouse of ideas in the, in the uh, 13 problems. But I, I, the labels of Hercules would be my desert island short story collection, definitely. Five Little Pigs, Desert Island Novel, Labors of Hercules, Desert Island oh. short story collection. Good to know. And if I was allowed to miss Marple, it would be emerging announced. Yeah, I'm very excited, actually, to get to that one. A lot of people have referenced that one as a favorite, and I remember quite enjoying it the first time around. So, yeah. I just have one other question for you, because this is something that has bedeviled us a bit in covering Christie titles more closely. Most casual fans are, are familiar with the fact that sometimes there would be a title change between the UK and the US title of a book, but... There are even there are some Christie novels that have three, if not four, alternate titles because there was often a title change when the book was first serialized in a newspaper. They would call it something else. Yeah. Then there's a UK novel title, then a US novel title. Sometimes there's a US serialization. And this is even the case not just for the novels, but the short stories. A lot of those yeah. Tuesday Night Club murders were, were alternately titled in the US. Is this just yeah. marketers doing their job too eager, eagerly and thinking, I can do this better than she can and I have a better title for my audience? Why all of the title changes? I don't think there's any one reason for it. I think part of the reason, certainly for the changes in the novels between the US and the UK, I, because so many of her books have nursery rhyme titles, I always suspected that the Americans didn't have the same nursery rhymes. Maybe I'm wrong. We do, but I think that's a fair point because I think that they are probably not as widely known for Americans as they are for for a a UK audience. Yeah, I think so. And then things like 450 from Paddington. Well, everybody now knows Paddington and millions of people have been through Paddington but when she was publishing that in the late 1950s and there was no such thing as Google that would have meant nothing am I not right in saying to most Americans 
Right, like they would have been like, what's Paddington? Yeah, they didn't know that it was a train station, right? Yeah, so I, I think sometimes it's just a purely practical reason. But then I think also that magazine editors just like to wield the blue pencil of their power a little bit. And because it was such a lucrative market, even Agatha Christie was happy to let them do whatever they wanted. But I have to say, she was very unaware of her own titles because I've seen letters when she would write back to somebody talking about my novel, The 240 to Paddington. Really? Well, I suppose when you consider the amount of material she produced, it would begin to gel after a while. Oh, at a certain point, I feel like that, that even doing this podcast, there's so many Christie titles swimming around in my head, it's yeah. overwhelming. Yeah, and as you say, then the short stories are probably even worse because, well, I don't know if you're familiar with Henry Queen Mystery Magazine, but they published, I'd say that over the years they published all of Agatha Christie's short stories, but if you read background material on most writers, they would say they were quite very happy to be published in the Henry Queen Mystery Magazine, but Ellery Queen had a fetish for changing titles. Hmm. I mean, that's just what, what he did. So because it was a prestigious magazine, it paid a little bit more than most other magazines, they just agreed to the title changes. So I suppose if you're a working author, you're not going to bother to change of a word or two if it means a couple of hundred dollars. I get that. She often made, it seems like early in her career, she often made more money off of the serialization rights than royalties, oh. right? Yeah. Absolutely. When you look at the amount of money she was getting in the 1930s, that was why she put in the extra few chapters at the beginning of John Witness. I mean, $18,000 in 1936. That's not nothing now. <laughs> no, exactly. That's exactly the point I made when yeah. I came across it. Yeah. So what, what was worth a lot more than that 80 years ago. Well, that was a fantastic discussion with... Mr. Curran, I have to say I had high expectations, and I think my expectations were exceeded. I completely agree, and I think that we're very excited to bring him back on again in the near future, because, listener, you may be surprised to hear this, but we didn't even make it through about half of our question list. Yeah, we really didn't. We had so many questions for him. We will 100% be having him back on. We're so thankful that he took the time to speak with us and lend his wisdom and his expertise on all things Christy. We so, so appreciate it. Thank you, Mr. Curran. And next week, we will be covering our next novel, which is Hercule Poirot's Christmas. And fittingly enough, with Hercule Poirot in the title, this is our final Poirot of the 1930s. We have done nine in a row. This is number nine. Christmas is also in the title, and it is June. That's okay. I think we'll be okay because this title has very little actually to do with Christmas. <laughs> so if you're feeling like, I don't want to read a book with Christmas in the title, it's hot out, this just doesn't feel right, I would say have no fear, dear listener. Christmas is not here. Christmas is not within these pages. So. So it is all right to be reading it in the sunshine. It's practically a beach read. Provided you (laughs) like your beach reads with a heavy dose of blood. Some people do. Stephen King on the beach, you know. I certainly can appreciate that. (laughs) All right. Well, in the meantime, we would love to hear from you as we always do. Our email address is allaboutthedame at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame or find Catherine at brobcat. We're also on Facebook. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha. And we're on Instagram at All About Agatha. And we would love it if you would take a moment to rate and review us. It helps us out. It helps other people find the podcast. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.